0: Well, hello, Grace Family Church. My name is Hal Mayer. I'm the campus pastor at the Temple Terrace campus. I'd like to welcome all of you that are here, those of you that are watching online. And of course, at all of our seven campuses, we've got our Lutz campus, which is you guys. We've got our Carrollwood campus, our South Tampa campus, our Ebor campus, our Orlando Lakes campus, our new campus, which is our Clearwater campus. And of course, my home campus, the Temple Terrace campus. And so we are in our second week of our series called Ghost Stories. And we're talking about spiritual warfare. And one of the big things that spiritual warfare does many times when we talk about it is it creates a sense of fear. And one of the biggest problems with fear is fear has a way of stealing joy. And so when you're dealing with fear, what you need to do is you need to step into the fear, right? I mean, for me, I'll just be honest with you guys. I'm going to share something with you. I'm just asking that you don't just make fun of me for it a lot. But when I was a little kid, I had a very weird fear. I was afraid of puppets that's not, that's the punchline. That's it, puppets. Yeah, I, I was afraid of puppets. There was something about it. We would go to Sunday school and the teacher would do, you know, a story of Jesus with puppets. And I'm like, nope, not about Jesus today. I was just afraid of puppets. And actually it got even bigger the moment my parents decided to take me to Chuck E. Cheese. You guys are getting me. Yeah, Chuck E. Cheese, because, and here's the deal. It's not that my parents didn't love me. My parents absolutely love me. If you are a parent, you take your kid to Chuck E. Cheese. You must love them to even endure that. But I remember they took me to Chuck, Chuck E. Cheese for my birthday, and it was a great time. You know, you're playing skee-ball, you're having fun, we're doing all the games. It was a great time. The pizza came, ate the pizza. It's not really about the pizza, so it didn't matter. And then what? The birthday cake came. But with the birthday cake came Chuck E. And so Chucky came out, and he brought my birthday cake, and he set the birthday cake in front of me, and I saw the birthday cake, and I was excited, but then I turned to my side and saw Chucky, and I screamed, and I was scared to death, and my parents to this day still make fun of me for that, but I would like to say this. I think it is the natural response when a kid sees a six-foot rat (laughs) is terror, right? I mean, think about it. What, what meeting did they have? And they're like, hey, we wanna create this incredible place for kids' birthdays. What small furry pet does all kids love? A rat? Like, really? And I've heard people say, hey, well, how? You don't understand. Like, Disney has Mickey, and Mickey's a mouse. And look, that, that's different. Mice are cute. They're small. They help Cinderella get ready. What do, what do rats do? They brought us the bubonic plague. Right, And so I look next to me at the six foot rat that's probably bringing some plague and I freak out. But guys, that wasn't the end of it. Because in the main area, yes, you had Chucky, but in the back room was the source of all fears and terrors, the animatronic band. Yeah, some of you, you're like, you had blocked that out. You had forgotten about it. If you don't remember what the animatronic band looked like, I do have a picture for you because there's nothing more endearing than four bears, a gorilla that looks like he's about to murder you, and another six foot rat that for some reason has a cheerleading outfit on. And on top of that, I would like you to notice that the bear all the way to the right has a bottle of moonshine next to him because what do we need to tell kids? Alcohol is fun. And I remember my parents bringing me into that and watching it, and it was terror for me. This was not fun at all. My dad's like, I wanna bring you up front so you can see it. I'm like, no, I'm good in the back. So finally it ended. Like they actually brought the curtains back together, and my dad goes, hey, we're gonna go up there. So he picks me up and he takes me up to the front, and he pulls back the curtain and he touches the animatronic bear and he goes, look, it's not real, it's a robot. He goes, I want you to touch it. I'm like, nope. I was good with you touching it. He's like, no, 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 you need to touch it. You need to realize it's not real. And so I reached out my hand to touch it. And I'm so happy there wasn't some teenager in the back that thought it would be incredibly fun to flip it on at that moment. Because I don't think I'd be up here anymore. I'd be in like in a corner just shaking. But I reached out and what I do? I touched the bear, right? I touched the bear. I realized it wasn't moving. I was like, okay, this isn't real. My dad's like, hey, you know, the guy, the, the rat that you saw out there, that's actually a guy in a rat costume. And I'm like, why do people do that for a living? And he goes, I don't know. And so we just had this moment where all of a sudden, because I understood what was going on, because I saw the truth, my fear was taken back. See, last week, that's what we did. We talked about the way the enemy works. But I need you to understand something today. Just because we know the way the enemy works doesn't mean our job is done. Just because we know the way Satan works doesn't mean there's not still a war that has to take place. See, when it comes to the enemy, many times we have two different thought patterns on him and both of them many times tend to be wrong. And C.S. Lewis said it this way. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. He says, one is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And I think this is most people. Well, Satan doesn't exist. Or Satan is around every corner, right? Everything is a demon. Everything that's happening is going on. And then we start to get enamored with it. And you see people get enamored with it because they get enamored with those movies that are about all these things. Like, remember The Exorcist? And so what we tend to think is, oh no, Satan's not doing anything unless somebody's head is spinning around and speaking in a deep voice. And I need you to understand that's exactly what Satan wants you to believe. Because very often, very often, the devil rarely works in the extraordinary. He tends to work in the ordinary. I love the quote, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. See, I think that's the reason he doesn't do all those things, because he doesn't want you to think he exists. He doesn't want you to think he's a problem. He doesn't want you to think there's a battle or a war that's going on. He wants you to think you're safe, because if you feel safe, you don't need a savior. And so he wants you to feel that way so that he can be precise, he can move in, and he can take advantage of you while you feel vulnerable. See, I need you to understand there's a spiritual war that is absolutely happening. It says in the Bible when when Satan was kicked out of heaven, a third of the angels were sent down with him and they became demons. And there is a spiritual battle going on around us. There's a spiritual battle going around us. We are involved in it, whether we like it or not. And it's not enough just to believe that there's a spiritual battle happening. We must all also wage war against it. See, there's a lot of battlegrounds that happen in this battle. There's a lot of battlegrounds that happen in this war. And the first one I wanna talk about is this, is the battle for your mind. See, if we're gonna wage war, we must win the daily battle for our mind and it's a daily battle. And here's what this battle is, it's very simple. It's who you are and whose you are. It's the daily battle for our identity. It's who we are and whose we are. And here's the truth, once you know whose you are, the who you are fills in. See, when we believe that we are God's, he tells us who we are. See, what Satan wants to do is he wants to separate you from that. He wants to change that. In fact, here's what Satan doesn't want to do. I think this is where we get confused. We think, oh, Satan wants us to worship him. No, 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 no. He's much smarter than that. He realizes that's incredibly hard to do. He goes, I don't want you to worship God. I want you to worship yourself, right? And pride comes into play. This is exactly what he did. The very first sin, Adam and Eve is in the garden. What happens? The Satan goes up to Eve as a snake and he says what? He he says, God doesn't want you to eat those apples because he knows once you eat the apple, you will become just like him. He goes, hey, if you eat that apple, what will you become? You get to become God. See, what Satan wants to do is he doesn't want you to worship him. He wants you to start worshiping yourself. And the moment you start to worship yourself, you separate yourself from God and we are vulnerable. See, what Satan loves to tell us is this, is that, hey, if you worship God, you're not free. Because if you worship God, you're following what he wants to do for your life. The only way that you'll be free is if you worship yourself, because then you get to decide what you want to do. Here's the problem with worshiping ourselves. There's two things we absolutely cannot get freedom from, sin and death. If you think you're free, stop sinning. It's not possible. If you think you're free, don't die. It's not possible. see, that's the problem. Sin and death are a big problem. And Satan doesn't want us to think about this because once we realize sin and death is a problem, we realize we need a solution. And God said, hey, here's the deal. I have that solution. In Galatians four, Paul's telling us here about that solution. He says this, he says, but when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for all of us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. I love the word adoption there because it says that God chose us. He saw us in the middle of our sin. He said, no, no, I want you. He says, and because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the Holy Spirit, prompting us to call out Abba, Father. He says, now you are no longer slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. See, what does God do? He says, hey, once you realize that you're gonna follow after me, I'm gonna give you purpose. You get to follow after me and and go after a purpose higher than you. I'm gonna give you identity. I'm gonna call you my child. You will be my heir and I will give you ultimate freedom in the fact that you will never experience death. He says that, but here's what we know. Whatever God creates, Satan counterfeits. So Satan will tell you, hey, that freedom that God has, it's not real freedom because you have to follow after him. So follow after yourself. What happens when we live in that kind of freedom? We sin, we mess up, consequences come into play and we sin in a pit of our own consequences. And then what does he do after that? He goes, hey, I want you to understand that, that purpose that God's giving you, that, that's really cool at all, but here's what your purpose should be. Fulfill yourself. Do the things you want to do. Do the things that make you greater. And then what happens? We fulfill those purposes. We do everything we can to make ourselves known. And at the end of life, we realize we are empty. See, what Satan does in that moment is perfect. He goes, after we're sitting in that pit, after we feel empty, he comes along and he says, now I'm gonna tell you who you are. In our moment of just peril, he says, hey, you're worthless. And I want you to know, because you already rejected God, he'll never accept you again. And he starts to tell you lie after lie after lie. So hear me, pride is not just something that we can be okay with. Pride at its base is a demonic trap. To keep you from what God has for your life. So how do we combat pride? It's humility. It's humility. And humility is not thinking less of myself. It's just thinking more of God. It's remembering that God is the one that is greater. God is the one that has chosen me. So what do you do? How do you fight this battle? Every day you start at reminding yourself of whose you are and who you are. Reminding yourselves that God has claimed you, and because of that, He's told you who you are. Because, church, we don't need self esteem or ego that's all trumped up with our own gain. We need the dignity, the value, and the worth that only God can bring us, that only God can give us. See, winning the battle for our minds starts before the battle even starts, it's that preparation phase. And we've got to prepare. We've got to prepare. And here's why we prepare, because we expect attacks. And as Christians, that's what we must do. We must expect the enemy to attack us. Why do we need to expect attacks? So we're not surprised by it. As Christians, we shouldn't be surprised when we are attacked. We shouldn't be surprised when we are tempted. We shouldn't be surprised when the enemy comes against us. Pastor Chris talked to last week about how we are attacked. He said, the devil will lie to you. He will accuse you. He will test you and he will tempt you. Why? Because he wants to separate you from God. So how do we prepare for these attacks? Well, the Bible actually tells us how to do that. In in Ephesians 6, Paul actually tells us to daily put on the armor of God. And in Ephesians 6, 13, it starts off with this, says, therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will be standing firm. God's goal is not for you to fall. God's goal is for you to stand firm says, stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness, you may have heard. It says, for shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the spirit at all times and on all, every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. See, I read this, I remember hearing this as a kid and we would actually put on the armor and it sounded kind of cheesy, but when I read it now, I understand how it prepares us for battle. See, I wanna wanna go through it. I wanna start with the head. You see, we start with the helmet of salvation. What does salvation tells us? It says, I am not saved because I am good. I'm saved because God is good. And because God is good, he has incredible grace and his grace extends beyond every sin I could commit. And so once I am God's, nothing can separate me from him. Right, we we need to know that first. So we put on that helmet of salvation, knowing whose we are and who we are. Then it says we put on the breastplate of righteousness, and we assume all right, we have a breastplate on. It's to it's to guard our heart, right? Because our heart is tender. Actually, what we learn from the Bible is our heart is deceitful. It's deceitful, and it says that we are not righteous. No, not one. The only one who is righteous is Jesus. So when we put on the breastplate of righteousness, we're putting on Jesus. So what happens is he guards us, but also when God looks at us, he doesn't see our deceitful heart, he sees Jesus. It says we, we put on the shield of faith. Why do we need the shield of faith? Because Satan, it says, shoots his arrows of lies, arrows of deceit, arrows of accusations at us. And every time we hear them, we need to defend ourselves against this. When he tells us we are worthless, when he tells us we aren't good enough, when he tells us your marriage can't make it, when he tells you you will never make it, when he tells you your kids will never come back to God, he says, I don't want you to pray anymore because I know it's powerful. We put up our shield of faith and we know the truth. See, that's what our belt is. It's the belt of truth. Why is truth important? Because when you know the truth, no lie can affect you. And it says, we put on our shoes of peace that we have because of the gospel. Why do we have peace because of the gospel? Because we know that even though things may be crazy right now, one day they will be right. That even though things seem out, of, out, out, out in the world and they seem crazy right now, we know that God is still in control. And then it talks about the sword of the spirit. As the sword of the spirit is the Bible. I mean, Jesus told us we need to use the Bible. We need to understand the Bible because before Jesus even started his ministry, before he did one miracle, he went out into the desert and fasted for 40 days and prayed to prepare himself for his ministry. And Satan himself came against him. Satan himself came against him and lied to him. And what did Jesus use to defend himself? Not a miracle. He didn't call down angels from heaven. He used God's word. Why? Because what does Satan do? Does Satan know God's word? Absolutely. He knows it backwards and forwards. And what he will do is he will take it and he will misconstrue it and he will make you think it is something else. So do we need to know his word? Absolutely. Because if we don't know it, Satan will use it against us. See, I was listening to a pastor the other day that talked about how all the armor we have, it's all in the front. It's all about you know, protecting ourselves from attack from in front of us, but there's nothing behind us. And that's purposeful. Because when God says we're supposed to go into this battle, we're never supposed to go alone. We're supposed to have somebody else on our team. We're supposed to have somebody else that is praying for us. It says in the end of that verse, stay alert and be persistent in prayer, not just for ourselves, but for others. Hey, I need you to understand this. One of the reasons you need to be in community is not just for you, it's for somebody else. You get to be that encouragement. You get to be that help. You get to be those prayers in those tough times. So what's interesting is I think one of the biggest reasons we don't like community is because we think our sin and our temptation is special. We do. Look, I'm not saying you're not special. You're a beautiful butterfly. But your sin and your temptation is not special. It's not, but that's what Satan wants to tell you. He wants to say, hey, nobody else has ever experienced this. Nobody else has ever gone through this. And when we think it's special, we don't want to share it. Look, your sin does not make you special. It makes you human. And one of the greatest breakthroughs that ever happens in community is the moment somebody shares something and you go, oh, I thought I was the only one. One of those biggest times of accountability for me was when I was my freshman year in college. Uh, I took a road trip with, with four other guys up to Tallahassee and on that way, one of the guys just got honest. He goes, hey guys, I deal with lust big time. He goes, when I walk across campus, I can't stop looking. When I date a girl, I date them the wrong way. He goes, and there's times in front of my computer, I know I shouldn't look at those images, but I continue to look at them. And all four of us in that moment went, oh, we're not the only ones. We had an open and honest conversation that led to accountability. Here's what's so crazy. It's a car full of 18 and 19 year old guys who all thought they were the only ones that dealt with lust how dumb does that sound? Like, seriously, as an 18 year old guy, I guess I'm the only one that deals with this. Really? Guys, it's just as dumb as you think you're the only one that deals with anger. You're the only one that deals with pride. You're the only one that deals with bitterness. The only one that deals with unforgiveness. See, what Satan wants to do is he wants to tell you your sin is special, your temptation is special, because then you won't say it out loud. In fact, that's one of the biggest ways you know it's a lie is you won't say it out loud you know, the moment you say it out loud, you'll know it's not true. See, our our sin is not special. The enemy is going to come against us and we need to be prepared for it. Hear me, church. You will be tempted. You will be attacked and you will fail sometimes. You will fail and you will fall. How do we get back up? Look, we're ready for the attacks, but there's going to be a time where we do fall. How do we get back up? We don't pay attention to the circumstances. We don't pay attention to the sin. We don't pay attention to the failure. We don't focus on any of those things. Here's what we do. We focus on our Savior. We focus on our Savior. One of my favorite stories in the Bible happened with Jesus and his disciples right after he fed 5,000 people. Incredibly cool story. Jesus gets five loaves of bread, two fish, breaks them up, feeds 5,000 people. Right after that, he goes away to rest. He shows us, hey, we all need rest. Even Jesus did. And he sends the disciples out on the boat across the sea. He goes, I'll I'll catch up with you guys later. Well, the disciples are out on the the boat. A storm comes in. They can't get to shore. They're a little bit freaked out. And on top of that, all of a sudden, they see somebody walking towards them on the water. They immediately think it's a ghost, right? Because that's what you would think when you saw somebody walking on water and they call out to it and Jesus responds and lets them know, hey, it's okay, guys, it's me. And what I love in this moment is Peter was apparently the only disciple that went, okay, so Jesus is walking on water. I wonder if he'll let me do it too. And he goes, hey, Jesus, if you would let me, I would love to walk on water to you. Will you let me do that? And Jesus says, come on. So he steps out of the boat and he starts walking on water towards Jesus. Problem is, as he gets further and further, he starts to notice the wind. He starts to see the waves. He starts to look down and realize, I'm walking on water. He freaks out and he starts to sink. And he calls out to Jesus and Jesus comes over and he picks him up. Say, oh, I, want, I want you to catch something real quick. When Peter walked out to Jesus on the water to make it possible, did he stop the wind? No. Did he calm the waves? No, he didn't. Did he make dry land come up so that Peter could see that he was walking on dry land? No, he didn't. Could he have done that? Yes, he could have. But what was the key to Peter walking on water to Jesus? His focus was on his Savior. I think so many times as Christians, we think that if we're really falling after God, nothing bad will ever happen. If we're really falling after God, we won't have temptation. We won't have problems. We won't have storms when the truth is not that at all. In fact, when we follow after Jesus, Jesus doesn't say your storms will go away. He says, if you look at me, you'll get through them. If you focus on me, you'll get back up. If you focus on me, you will get to the other side hear me, church, when we go through trials, when we go through problems, when the enemy gets us and knocks us down, our answer, our answer isn't just to sit there. Our answer is to look at our Savior. In Hebrews 12, 2, Paul says this exact thing. He says, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor besides God's throne. He says, look, that's what we're supposed to do. Jesus conquered death. He is our champion. If we focus on him, if we focus on him, he will get us through. What does it mean to focus on Jesus? Worship. That's what worship is. Yes, it is singing praises to him, reminding ourselves of who he is, but it's also praying. It's also reading his word. And it's also serving. And hear me. Honest, the reason we serve is not because we have to. The reason we serve is we realize how much God has done for us. So we serve others in the same way. So when we serve, we're actually reminding ourselves of what God has done for me. See, we focus on the Savior and know that we can walk on the water to him. But we do get knocked down. We do mess up. We do sin. And here's the problem many times. Is as Christians, we allow sin and unforgiveness to stay in our lives. We allow it to sit there. And I need you to understand why that is such a problem. When we allow sin and unforgiveness to stay in our lives, it tells us in the Bible that we give the devil a foothold. It's called a foothold in our life. When we both don't ask for forgiveness or when we refuse to forgive somebody else, when we allow bitterness and anger and envy to stay in our lives. And here's what it means by a foothold. It would be like this. If let's just say, and I know this, this is, would never happen. Let's just say for some reason, I decided I needed some more money. So I decided to rent out my house to a fraternity. No one would do that that's sane. Of course not. And so I decided I'm gonna rent my house out to a fraternity. What's gonna happen? They're gonna move in. What are they gonna do? They're gonna eat everything and they're gonna trash everything, right? It's a whole bunch of guys. They're gonna bring over people that I don't want there. They're gonna trash things. They're they're just gonna leave it in an awful, awful mess. Now, here's the deal. Do they own the house? No. Can I kick them out? Absolutely. What do I have to do? I have to actually move them out, hear me on this, when you allow unforgiveness or you don't ask for forgiveness in your life, you allow sin to sit there, what you allow to do is the devil to have a foothold, which means he comes into your house and he wreaks havoc. You allow him to have this unadulterated ability to get to your heart and to your mind and to fill your mind and your heart with lies. It's the reason you can't get over something may not be because it's such a big deal. It's because you've allowed Satan to have a foothold and he continues to tell you the lies every single day. See, with Satan, we can't just tell him to stop We can't say, hey, Satan, could you just please stop doing that? No, 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 you don't tell Satan to stop What do you do? You kick him out of the house and you lock the door You get rid of him The way we do that is through forgiveness See, I think one of the biggest signs of maturity in a Christian Is the amount of time you allow to elapse From when you sin to when you ask for forgiveness because here, here's why, from the moment I sin to the moment I ask for forgiveness is the moment of time I'm okay with Satan having free reign in my mind. For him to tell me lies, for me to give him a foothold. See, that's why it talks about in the Bible being ready to confess your sins because you want to get rid of it. And on top of that, it also says we need to forgive others. Look, I, I, I know what they did to you was awful. And the reason I want you to forgive them is not for them, it's for you. Because if you refuse to forgive, it says in the Bible, God will refuse to forgive us. If you refuse to forgive, it says we have given Satan a foothold into our lives, into our heart and into our minds. And we are allowing him to give us and feed us lies 24 7 See, what's incredible is we know that God is the only one that has the authority to forgive sins. And so we live under that authority, knowing that at any moment, anything that I've done, no matter how small or how big, God has promised to forgive. So we live under the authority that he's given us in that. But here's what's so incredible about God. Not only do we live under his authority, but we get to fight from his authority. See, when we become a Christian, not only do we gain heaven, not only do we gain forgiveness, but we gain the actual power that Jesus had. In Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, it says it this way. He says, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. He goes, I want you to understand the same power that rose, that allowed Jesus to rise from the dead is the same power you hold right now. You know how I can tell when a Christian doesn't realize they have power, they blame. We blame, we get in a hole and we blame everybody else. We get in a hole and we blame Satan, we blame demons. We, we go, this is not my fault. And here, here's why that happens is because when we blame, what do we say? We don't have power. And when we decide we don't have power, what do we become? A victim. See, a victim doesn't believe they have power. A victim doesn't believe they have the ability to fight back. Yet when we look in the scripture, what do we have the ability to do? See, you can't be both a victim and a victor at the same time. And God has said, you already have victory. Fight like you do. First Corinthians 15, 57 says, but thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us that victory. See, when we believe in Jesus, when we decide to give our lives to him, he gives us a new name. He gives us a new identity. He gives us victory. And he also sends us the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit, man, he is our comforter. He's our advisor. He's the one that helps us understand the Bible. He's the one that helps us fight this battle. And you're going, well, how, how, why haven't you talked about this this whole time? Because we're spending the next two weeks talking about him. And we're going to talk about how he joins us in that battle. But today you need to decide what your next step is in this battle. What do you need to do today? Do you need to decide that today I'm going to start winning the daily battle for my mind? Every morning I'm going to read God's word and remind myself of whose I am and who I am. And that he is the only one that gets to define me. Or maybe you need to actually open up your, book, your Bible to Ephesians, look at the armor of God and decide every day, I'm gonna suit up with these things. I'm gonna remind myself that I have salvation. I'm gonna remind myself of Jesus' righteousness. I'm gonna remind myself of the truth so that when Satan comes against me, I can stand firm. Maybe right now you need to turn your gaze from your circumstances and turn it back to your savior so you can get out of the pit that you are in. Maybe for some of you, you need to stop being a victim and realize the power that you have. I think probably the biggest one in this room across campuses is this, is that some of us need to kick Satan out of our lives. We've allowed him to have a foothold in our life for too long. And the reason behind it is very simple. Either I think my sin is too big for God to forgive, or I think their sin is too big, so I won't forgive them. Forgiveness solves that problem. Forgiveness kicks the enemy out of my life. So I know for maybe some of you here today, you haven't taken that first step. You haven't received that salvation. You realize today you're going, man, I've done exactly what you've said, how Satan has tricked me into believing that I can be the God of my own life. I've been falling after my own purpose, my own plans. I've decided that I'm gonna decide who I am. The problem is I've ended up in a pit and Satan is lying to me right now. And he's telling you right now that you're not good enough. That God won't forgive you. What you've done is too much. And I need you to understand that's a lie. And right now in this moment, you can receive forgiveness. God can come into your life and he can change the rest of your life. He will walk with you. He will give you a future. He will give you heaven and he will defeat sin and death. So today, if you want to do that, If you wanna receive that forgiveness and receive God, I'm gonna say a prayer in just a moment out loud that you can say silently right where you sit. But I could ask everybody right now in this room and those of you that are watching to just go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes. If you wanna give control of your life back to God right now and receive his forgiveness, I'm gonna say a prayer out loud that you can say silently right where you're at. Dear God, I know that I've sinned. Please forgive me. God, I believe your son came down to this earth that he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross for my sins. God, I thank you that you will give me a new identity, a new purpose and a new future. God, thank you for loving me first. Thank you for giving me Jesus. And in Jesus name I pray. Hear me, if you pray that prayer today, that is the greatest decision you will ever make. You have changed the trajectory of your life. And I want you to know there is next steps for everybody here in this room when it comes to forgiveness. So right now I'm gonna ask the campus pastors to come up and close out the service.